everybody. Welcome to Your Team with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph, and we are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today we're talking to Jennifer Wallace about nattering. That is what Jennifer Wallace just wrote a new book about. It's coming out in August, and it's called Never Enough, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. But before we talk to her, we're going to talk about, well, actually, we're going to do something a little different today because we missed one question, which is from her book, and you should get her book. So the quote is from Loretta Bruning. You can say that we shouldn't care about status. But if you fill a room with people who say they are anti-status, they would soon create a social hierarchy based on how anti-status they are. <laughs> I loved that quote so much because I, I kept thinking about all the ways that is true in my life, starting with, and I think you and I have talked about this before, Steph, uh, we got to hear Seth Godin in Cleveland and we got a book when we left. And in that book was this story about people who lived in a penthouse and you know, they're living in Manhattan in the top of the building, overlooking the Central Park, and they have this fabulous apartment, and the elevator goes directly up to the penthouse, and someone buys the air rights above them and builds another floor. <laughs> and the people in the first penthouse are livid. Like, they feel devalued by that new apartment on top of them, but what's different in their lives? Mm -hmm. Like, what changed for them? Nothing. They've got the same view. They've got the same apartment. They've got the same elevator. Like, it's just so interesting how that diminished the value of what they had because someone rose ab above them when practically their lives were exactly the same. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think so. I'm trying to think about that, like scientifically and, and in real life, nothing changed. But my perception would be that's not what I bought. I bought the top. <laughs> that's not fair. That's I was sold something. And now it's just human nature, right? We went to see Hamilton in Cleveland and um, we were able to get the tickets through one of my kids' friends. And so we were able to get great seats at a reduced price. So that the whole story was like about being special, right? Like you get these tickets, you pay less money than the people behind mm -hmm. you sitting sixth row center and we go and we're walking and we're walking and I have a little bit of this like lift in like, you know, specialness. And behind me is someone I know. And they say, where did you get, how'd you get your tickets? And I said, how do you know I got my tickets? And they said, well, everybody's sitting here had to get their tickets from somebody. So um, then he says, do you have a pass for after the show? <laughs> it didn't ruin my experience. But it took it down. But it changed it. It changed it. I was like, no. <laughs> I remember going to my first, like, you know, going to my first, uh, like a benefit or something, right? A fundraiser. And we were invited, like, maybe we were someone's get, whatever. And then all of a sudden, I remember walking by the VIP lounge. I'm like, well, wait, what's that? And I remember saying, like, oh, yeah, no, we're, we're not allowed in there. And I'm like, wait, but why? And then, it, again, did, right. I was having a great time. And then I'm like. Yeah, but what's going on in there? You're having a little less great. You're still having a great time, but a little less great time, right? <laughs> I was a little less special. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. Have you ever had the experience where you're on the side of, I don't, I'm not going to compete in this. And then like to the quote, you're competing about not competing. Yeah, no one can see me nodding my head. Exactly. Exactly. We have this thing where in our neighborhood, 
For the Jewish Passover, we have what we call a Seder. It's a dinner with a uh, storytelling. And then there's a lot of conversation around the story. And in our community, people brag about how late they stay up. Like, oh my God, we didn't finish till 3 a.m. And like in my house, that was the worst night. Oh my God. So we decided like, we're going to brag about how, how early we get done. And it did become a thing where people would be like, we finished earlier than you. <laughs> I would be part of that contest. <laughs> yeah. But so you can't get around it. You're lying to yourself if you're like, I'm, I'm not part of that story. I'm hearkening back as we're sitting here thinking about conversations where something would come up about a kid where somebody was like, Oh my God, I was so hands off that I blotty. Like, man. I didn't help my kids with their college application. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I read I read their essays. Oh, <laughs> I didn't read their essays. I didn't do anything. Oh, right? Like that goes on a lot. That that is such a, we need to do a whole podcast on that because that is so funny to me. Right. Yeah. It is the game. You know, I always talk about I'm doing this thing with my hands where the, you know, the hands keep going on top of each other. It's a little Jenga-like. Then something gets pulled out and when does it topple? But yeah. um, okay. The other thing that was really interesting, which when you listen to the rest of the podcast, it's one of our favorites ever. Yeah. Really such a, a good interview. But one of, one of the things that we talked about was how you greet your kids after school. And that was a part of a larger story, which you'll hear. We're not going to tell you the larger story because we want you to keep listening. But how you greet your kids when they come home from school is so telling to them about what you prioritize. And as she was talking, I was like, oh, I want to do that again. I want I them back home. I know. So like, what would be the number one thing that you feel like you said when they came home that you wouldn't do anymore? I think they're like, so how did it go? Because they left the house so anxious about something. So it's like a point in time. It's like no time has passed, right? So really eight hours has passed. But in my world, they just walked out the door. And now they're walking back in. It's like a second to me. So yeah, they, how did it go? I think I would just want to be like, oh, hey, I don't even know what I'd want to be. I know what I wouldn't want to be. Well, you know, it's so interesting because some of it feels like a natural, like we've been continuing to think about them when they left for school and worried about them, right? Some of it's like a natural continuation, but yeah. I know the thing I did, I learned this from Rachel Simmons years ago that I know I, I lived on with their social lives when they were yeah. gone. If there, mm. so there, if there was something the day before when they walked in, I said, how did it go? Right with this whole like- how do you like, not? <laughs> how do we not? Because I know that I elevated that story to a greater degree of importance than it was for my kids. Like yeah. I put value on the fight in a way that could have, it could have resolved itself without me ever being part of it. It was yeah. like girls in high school and nothing significant. And by going, and then what? And then what did you say? Right? Like that just, it, it adds all this importance to a conversation that didn't have to have happen. I would take away a lot of those kind of meet my needs versus their needs. Like that was a my need to do that. Yeah. Right. Isn't that funny? It's probably because we've been doing this for so long and our kids have all turned into adults. One of the things I'm more conscious of now is just when they enter the home, whether they've been away for a long time or they happen to be home and they ran out for an hour, always saying like, oh, hey, cutie, I love to see your face. It's so good to see your face. But man, I wish I had done more of it when they were little. <laughs> Yeah, it's still not too late. I guess that's how I feel. That's exactly yeah. what I'm getting at. Exactly. I, I think this book is, first of all, Jennifer has done work with corporations and 
If you go to the Mattering website, which is thematteringmovement.com, you'll see that it's for parents, educators, and businesses. Like, it, it's not too late. Up next is our conversation with Jennifer Wallace. We can't wait for you to join us. Can you believe that together we sent eight kids to college? How did we do it? Well, if you're wondering how my family paid for five college tuitions, we actually really relied on the 529 college savings plan to save for college. We started investing in Ohio 529 plan when our kids were young. It was the best decision we made relating to college. And Ohio's 529 plan has such a common sense approach. And you don't have to be an Ohio resident. Families can open an account for as little as $25. And Ohio's 529 plan is the tax-free way to save for education after high school. Anyone, including parents, grandparents, which I love, family members and friends who contribute to an Ohio 529 account can claim a deduction. One of my favorite things is that these tax-free funds saved in Ohio's 529 plan college advantage can be used for a wide variety of educational expenses. Tuition, fees, books, room and board, The biggest surprise for me was that it covers trade schools, graduate school, and in my opinion, the craziest dolphin training school. You can't go wrong. And if there's one thing we learned, it's never too late to start saving. To learn more, go to collegeadvantage.com. Today's guest is Jennifer Wallace. She is a journalism fellow at the Center for Parent and Teen Communication at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She contributes frequently to the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post with articles covering parenting teens and young children, as well as work and relationships. Jennifer also has a new release that comes out in August. You can pre-order it now. It's called Never Enough, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. Jennifer, thanks so much for being here with us. So you've written a lot about the importance of mattering, and now you have a new book that's being released in August, Never Enough, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. In reading your book and in speaking with you, I had this thought like, when's the moment? You know, that we all have these moments in our lives where something, and I will say talking to you and learning about what you're doing was a moment for me. When was your moment when you heard someone talk about mattering and you said, that's it for me? Yeah, so it was Gordon Flett who is one of the leading researchers, both in perfectionism and in mattering. I was interviewing him a lot for the book, and I remember watching him give a speech on mattering. And it's the closest thing I've ever come to a transcendent moment where I was like, oh my gosh, this is the solution. But it's not just the solution for our adolescents. It's the solution for parents. It's the solution for workers. It's the solution for people in later life and retirement. This basic instinct to matter, the psychologists who study it say it is the greatest driver of human behavior after the after food and shelter. It is the instinct to matter, to feel valued and to be depended on to add meaningful value to others. That is what makes us thrive no matter our age. So there's so many books about raising kids, What particularly spoke to you about mattering? 
as it relates to raising kids? I traveled for this book. I traveled all over the country. I went to Washington State. I went to Maine. I went to Ohio, Florida, Wyoming. I spoke with parents in Alaska, Texas. And I was looking for who were the healthy high achievers? What did they have in common? What were their mindsets? What did the parents say to them? What was school like? And I found that kids who were thriving despite the pressure, those were the kids who had a high level of mattering. And the kids who were most in distress had what I call a contingent sense of mattering. They felt like they only mattered when they were achieving. And so that to me is sort of the magic protective factor. The kids who felt like they mattered still had moments of anxiety and they were stressed and they were sometimes down and they failed, but they were able to get back up because of this core belief that they had that they mattered no matter what. So that's what really was compelling to me about mattering. Did you have some kind of rubric? Like how did you assess which who fit where? I did two national surveys and I employed a researcher at Harvard for the parent survey and a researcher at Baylor for the student survey. So the rubric, yes, I worked with a researcher on the rubric. I I asked parents if they thought, you know, their kid was a healthy achiever. People were remarkably knowledgeable and honest. I went into schools. I asked school psychologists. I talked to teachers. I talked to their peers and people sort of nominated, oh, you have to talk to this person. All of the lead characters in my book, all of the lead students were nominated by their peers. Um, And that's how I initially got to them. And then I spoke with their parents. I spoke with teachers. I spoke with school psychologists, school counselors, but it was mostly the peers knowing who was really thriving in these environments. They knew. Kids are smart. Okay, so on your website, what's your website? JenniferBWallace.com. And what's your Mattering website? TheMatteringMovement.com. Okay, so your website says, Deep Sense of Mattering offers a protective shield of psychological resources like self-worth and a sense of belonging that act as a critical buffer from life's adversities. So, and you say on there that it's simple yet profound. So... I'm left thinking, okay, well, I want to do that, but what does that look like? Like, how do I become an expert at letting my kids know they matter? Yeah. I think one of the things I love most about mattering is that you don't need a PhD. You don't need to have studied the subject. It is this simple framework that researchers have come up with that a parent can use in their home. So just to give you kind of the basics of the framework, it's if you feel like you matter, you feel valued by your family, friends, and community and you were relied on to add meaningful value to the family, to their peers, and to the community. So what a parent can do is if they see a child who's not doing well, they can take this framework and they can say, what is it that they might be lacking? Are they not feeling valued at home? Are they not getting the one-on-one attention that they need? Am I sending too many messages that their mattering is contingent? Am I not explicit about how much they matter to me? Or at home, am I not asking them to add value back? Are they so consumed by their own resume that there's no time to help the family out? In other words, are they not getting social proof that they actually matter beyond my words? And I have found that often in these high achieving communities, there isn't a lot of room in our children's calendar to depend on them, to rely on them, to actually add meaningful value. Guilty. Were you guilty, Steph? Let me list the things I am guilty of. That particular one, I yeah. <laughs> it doesn't help them to be so self-focused. What helps them is when we as parents can help them turn that lens outward and show them their place in the greater world. And the way that, you know, family is the first society for a kid. And so what chores do or being dependent on to take your 
little brother to school like we had in our family. My older son, even if he had the day off or could go into school later, his responsibility was to take his younger brother to school. And that wasn't always awesome for him, (laughs) but he knew that we needed that. That wasn't some made up chore. That was like something that we really needed. And another thing I I did was um, I'm actually very much not great at tech. And so my older son is my tech expert. And so when I really need something, I call on him and he's actually, and this is again, not a great parenting moment, but during COVID, I had a few freak outs and he pretended to go to the bathroom to come and help me with my tech issues. So he truly felt like he was relied on. These were not sort of fake things. And I think it takes some time. And in COVID, our kids really did see, most of our kids saw how much we really needed them. And I think if we can carry those lessons onward, it's a protective factor for our kids. The COVID piece is so interesting, but that's a whole other conversation. So we don't have to talk about your kids specifically, but since you brought them up, um, what do you want for your kids? And how is it different than maybe what you thought before you had kids or before you actually did the work on the movement? Yes. So I I think I was guilty it before I did the research on this book of just wanting my kids to be happy. Like that was my goal for them, which, you know, seems like a really nice goal. But in researching the book and researching mattering, I now want something more for them. I want them to live a fulfilling life. And I believe in that meaningful life. They're not always going to be happy, but I believe there's a greater wish I have for my kids now, which is to know that they really matter, to know that they are really loved and to know that they add value to other people. And that to me is a far superior metric in life success is to feel like you matter versus chasing for happiness, which is so temporary and elusive. Mattering is sort of this healthy driver. So what's the biggest change you've made as a parent since you began this book? Well, I will say that the experts that I spoke with who are so amazing and legendary in their field, one of them, Tina Payne Bryson, who's a psychotherapist in California, gave me four questions that she asks parents to see what kind of culture they have at home around achievement. And I always thought, you know, I sent my kids really good signals and, you know, I didn't press them too hard. And then she gave me these four questions and I thought, oh, wow, I'm guilty of this. I thought they were helpful and I could give them to your audience. So again, these are Tina Payne Bryson's. Um, The first thing is, as a parent, think about what you spend your money on when it comes to your kids. Where does the money go? The second question she asks is, take a look at their calendar. How are they spending their time outside of school and on their weekends? The third thing is, what do you ask your kids about? What are the conversations that you initiate with your kids? And the fourth is, what do you argue with them about? Take note of the things that you get upset Mm. about. And when she put it that way, I felt like I, yeah, you know, when they Walked in the door, was I guilty of asking about how the quiz went that I knew they were studying for the night before? Or one of the things I started to do was I now lead with lunch. So when my kids <laughs> walk through the door, it's just a simple tweak because what I've come to realize and my the way I, I got to this idea was that my grandmother, who has since passed away, was sort of the, the model of not only unconditional love, but unconditional regard, which is our kids can know that we love them unconditionally. But do we regard them unconditionally? Do they get the sense that if they don't perform as well, that we might hold back, whether it's that we don't want them to feel pressured or they might be reading that signal that we're withdrawing our love, which was something, you know, when my child would come home with a bad grade, I would be disappointed for them, 
not disappointed in them, but did they get that message? So I've become much more aware of the signals that I'm sending that they might misinterpret. So instead of asking them when they walk in the door, how'd you do on the quiz? Because I knew that that's what they were focusing on that day. I ask, like I say about my grandmother, who used to ask me in every conversation, what did you have for lunch today? And that to me just meant I am more than my achievements, that my mother, that, you know, as a mother, I wasn't thinking for eight hours about how they were doing on that test and worried about it. I was just thinking about them as a person. And so actually I have found that I never have to ask how they did on a test or a quiz because they will 1000% reveal it to me over the course of the day and the night. I don't have to know that information. Um, it, It comes out and I don't need to focus on it and put a spotlight on it. I want to redo. I was just going to say, I'm going to have a fourth and Sue's going to have a sixth kid. So (laughs) I want my kids to still be living in my house, coming home from school. And I say, what did you eat for lunch? Instead of had the test go. (laughs) Mine was not, I felt bad for them. I often felt bad for me too, which is even Mm -hmm. worse. You worked so hard and What's that going to mean long term? Like, as I was reading your book, I was like, shit, I remember myself as a much different parent than I'm feeling right now as I'm reading. <laughs> like I'm reading going, yep, I see myself there, you know. OK, you you visited schools for your book, which, by the way, next book, I want to go with you. I want to be your I will be your assistant with a notepad just taking notes. <laughs> in one highly competitive private all girls school, you spoke with several girls and you met them in person, first of all. The way these kids speak and understand what's going on around them, like I was such a dumb, naive, like a whole different species of adolescence than the way these girls sound in in your book. So in your telling of this story, you talk about making thinking visible. Can you tell us what that means? Yeah. It's all around these girls that you see and you see them differently the second time you go in. Yes. So the overall concept of making the thinking visible is something I learned from this school that you mentioned in, in Los Angeles. And the, the point of making thinking visible is that sometimes our kids can't conceptualize these big ideas that are in their environment. One example that a mother gave me about making the thinking visible is she, when her kids are struggling with social comparison or feeling like they're not worthy or they, they had a big failure or they, they didn't make the editor in chief of the school newspaper, she will go into her wallet and grab a $20 bill and she will crumple it up. She will throw it on the floor and make it super dirty. She will dunk it dramatically into a cup of water. And then she will hold this soggy, dirty $20 bill. And she will say, do you want this $20 bill? And she'll say, yes. And she'll say, like your worth, when you are bruised, when you are beaten down, when you fail, your worth doesn't change just like this $20 bill. And that to me was so powerful. And that is a way of making the thinking visible for our kids giving them these concrete ideas when they fail, when they stumble, their worth does not change. That's one of my favorite takeaways from the book. Yeah. Also that the girls had each other's backs, right? Like that the, oh my gosh. there was something so different about the culture. Because they had supportive parents at home. They had a culture at the school that was from the top down where everyone was unique. Here's why that school I think was so special is that every student felt uniquely known for who they were, that they did not have to compete to be worthy. 
they already knew their worth and it was hammered into them every day. And so like one of the ways that, that um, the teacher in the school helped to reinforce the worth is that she would sometimes open the class with something she called share the love, where there would be shout outs from journalists to their editors, thanking them for, for doing such a great job editing the piece, or you know a thank you to a section editor for doing a, a great job of laying out the section. Or she would have the girls tape a piece of paper behind them and have people in the class write anonymous things that they loved about that person, their great editing skills, that they're always there for them, that they're so dependable. And then the person would take that piece of paper off and put it in their binder. And when they were having a tough day, they would look at all of the things that others thought about them to remind them of their worth. Because we need reminding. No matter how much a parent tells their child that they are worthy, they also need reminding in the larger community. And the best way we can do that for our kids is to help them find a strength that they can add to others. And this class that I sat in on really did an amazing job of helping kids know their value, specifically what they were good at and how they were adding it to the larger community. It was really inspiring. Okay, so I I wanna give a quote by Sunya Luther that's in your book. And I first wanna say, Sunya passed away recently. And when I read all of her quotes, I was reminded how much I I miss her. We we interviewed her so many times. and, And in that weird world of virtual, she became a friend even though we never actually met in real life. And so I saw in your book that you also have a deep attachment to Sunya and her work. So I wanted to give a a quote of hers. Critics of this generation say they are being coddled and overprotected, but I actually think it's quite the opposite. They're being crushed by expectations to accomplish more and more. So can you tell us a little bit about that? So what she was referring to, I had talked to her about helicopter parenting. Because I'll be honest, the parents that I met, and I I surveyed 6,500 parents nationwide, and then I went in person and met with 200 families. None of those parents were helicoptering and pushing their kids for the bumper sticker on the back of the car. I did not see the evidence of that. And Sonia, in her research, did not see the evidence of that. What, What she and I both saw were that there were these macroeconomic forces the crush of the middle class, globalization, stick with me, it comes back to this quote, the steep inequity that parents are feeling, right? We are feeling that our world is so uncertain and we are trying to prepare our kids for this uncertainty. It is not for the bumper sticker that we are pushing our kids. It is this belief that life is so much harder. And so what these kids are absorbing is not a coddling from a helicopter parent who wants to make them feel safe. What these kids are absorbing is a cultural societal message that there is a deep, uncertain, hyper-competitive world out there, and it is crushing our children. So I think what she was reacting to in that quote was, helicopter parents are not coddling our kids. What our kids are feeling is the pressures in the larger community, and they are being crushed. So I'm not sure if that point came across to you, but that that to me is the, one of the biggest takeaways of the book. The pressure on our kids is bigger than any one, quote, helicopter family, helicopter parent. The crush our kids are feeling is because of the steep inequity in our society and the fact that there are fewer and fewer safety nets for our kids. 
than there were in the 1970s when we were growing up. It just seems to me how much um, zero-sum game comes into this whole conversation. And if there's a feeling of scarcity, you are going to have that feeling over and over again. I, I mean, I, there wasn't enough time to cover all the questions I have, but that's a really big one for me. How do you ever change that? Like, how do you change the idea of valedictorian in the school, right? Like all of these things that make it seem like if you don't get those things, it, 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 there's no way out of the competition. But we'll do that the next time we do that. Because I'll tell you, in my book, there is a way out. And the healthy achievers had parents who found the abundant mindset, not the scarcity mindset, because that scarcity mindset is dirty fuel that might get your kid to a short-term goal. It might scare them into getting a good grade or scare them into hyper-competition on the field. But in the long run, and we are seeing this as a society, I no longer have to convince parents. The data is there. This dirty fuel causes burnout, anxiety, depression, substance abuse disorder. There is a better, healthier way for long-term achievement. And that is not the scarcity mindset. Everything we talk about, I sit there and I say, yes, 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 that's what I want for my kid. And then I'm sitting here in the society of the pressure cooker and not acting how I want to act or how I think I should act. So where do we find that as parents? Where do we find that space um, that, you, that you're talking about? Like what to relieve that pressure? What can we do and what can our kids do? Yeah. So I would say um, to go back to Sonia Luthar, the number one intervention for a child in distress is to make sure the primary caregiver that which is most often the mother her well-being her support system her mental health is intact because a child's resilience according to Sonia Luther and decades of resilience research fundamentally rests on the parent's resilience and a parent's resilience rests on the adults in their lives their friendships um, their colleagues. So the number one thing I think a parent can do to shift from the scarcity mindset is to be able to talk about it with people in their life who understand them, who know them, who show them that unconditional love and support that they need to show to their, their own children. Having a firm sense of mattering as a parent shifts you from the scarcity to an abundant mindset. You realize that it is not getting your kid the valedictorian spot that's going to secure their future. What's going to secure their future is having relationships and people around them who can support them so that they can reach for higher goals and that they have a true safety net when they fall. That is the best thing we could do for our kids. That is how we shift. Teaching them that life is not zero sum, like we have been told, those are lies. Those are lies. And parents need to call them out when they see them. When I was first writing this book, I thought I would have to convince parents of this. But the recent data of 50% of adults, according to the Surgeon General, reporting you know, high levels, measurable levels of loneliness, that is what causes mental health issues. When you are in the scarcity mindset, you cannot achieve. It, it backfires. So the number one thing we could do for our kids is to make sure that our mattering is intact and our children's sense of mattering is intact because it is in that that they can reach for higher things and have that clean fuel that will motivate them throughout life. In 2018, you wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal about gratitude, how to raise more grateful children. What's the connection between gratitude and mattering? Yes, there is a strong connection. So in order to 
to know that we matter. We need social proof from others that we matter. And what gratitude gives is an outward recognition of somebody else's value. So gratitude is recognizing the beauty in our life. And number two, recognizing that that source of goodness comes from outside of ourselves. And so most often it is other people in our life that have given something, that have devoted time, they've made a connection for us, they've given us something. So in recognizing that out loud, we are reinforcing to other people why they matter. So gratitude is the glue that keeps our relationships together. Mattering is what bolsters the sense that we are deeply valued. Does that make sense? So they they work together in tandem, that it's hard to know if you matter if no one is telling you that you matter. And so gratitude from our peers, from our colleagues, that is what gives us social proof that we matter. It's probably why having a baby is so hard. Yeah, exactly. Right? You're not getting any of the, even though like you should know you matter, right? (laughs) Like you're the one caring for that baby, but you are not getting any feedback, which is kind of interesting. Can you tell us about turning 50 and the gift your kids gave you? Oh my gosh. Yes. So uh, for my 50th birthday, uh, my husband uh, planned a party. It was at the tail end of COVID. um, And so it was, you know, an, an intimate gathering, but each child, I have three, and my husband all talked about mattering to, to the guests. They had internalized the message, despite the eye rolls that I sometimes get when I talk about mattering, because it is now front and center in our home. And we talk about it. And actually, they now use the language. And um, so what they did at my 50th is they gave me a toast, a six-minute toast about why I matter. And they had reached out to my guests and asked them uh, one thing that they like about me or valued about me. And they included that. So they, they showed me in words why I mattered. And that was pretty incredible. That's so beautiful. Beautiful. We're going to wrap up with the question we ask all of our guests. You are the mom of three teens, as you just said. What is the biggest myth about raising teenagers? Oh, I would say the biggest myth is that our ultimate job as a parent is to raise our kids to be independent. And in researching this book, I have found that to be so destructive, such a destructive message. Our ultimate goal as parents is to raise our kids to be interdependent, to be relied on and to rely on others in healthy ways. That is the safety net of support our kids need, particularly when we are no longer there to guide them in life. They need healthy interdependent relationships, not to be stoically independent doing it all on their own, as if that's even possible. Jennifer Wallace, I want to start all over and just go with your last answer and talk about that only. That's your next book. I hope you've started on it already. That's that is profound. What a treat for us. And everybody go get this book. They can can people sign up now to pre-register and had and I think and you even give them something if they do that. My editor was so generous, my publisher. Um, if you pre-order the book now, you get the first two chapters, messages of mattering at home and actions of mattering at home. So really how to, uh, that's not in the book. And also you get the secrets of healthy strivers, the secrets I found uh, uh, from the hundreds of teens I met and surveyed um, over four years. They just the sort of outline of the secrets of healthy strivers. That's also not in the book. So if you pre-order, you get these ex- this exclusive content. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you guys. Thanks for joining us today. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. 
You can follow Your Teen on Facebook by searching Your Teen for Parents and on Instagram and Twitter at Your Teen Mag. Okay, so we're we're two moms who share everything. We read an article and we go like, oh my God, my friend, my friend has that same story. We listen to a podcast and we think to ourselves, who can we share this with? It was so good. And we're hoping you're the same. We're hoping you're listening to our podcast, Your Team with Sue and Steph, and you're so excited by what you're hearing that you're sharing it with a friend. We're so grateful in advance for you doing that because that changes our whole story. We get much more exposure and we want everyone to hear what our fabulous, talented experts have to say to help us raise our teenagers. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com and listen to all our episodes on evergreenpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus our favorite producer, Hannah Leach, and audio engineer, Gray Longfellow. We'll see you next time. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.